Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, A Mission for Ministry, with a message entitled, We Trust the Bible, Part 2. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 18, verse 30, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We live in a day when, sadly, many people, even many Christians, argue that to simply state that we trust the Bible is hopelessly naive. That's what I want to talk about today. Now, if you missed yesterday's address on this topic, I will not be reviewing any of that, simply assuming you know it. If you'd like, please go back and listen to it. But today I want to discuss the matter of the entire trustworthiness of the Bible. And in order to do that, I wish to quote Article 2 on the short statement from the Chicago Declaration of Biblical Inerrancy. It says, Holy Scripture being God's own word written by men, prepared and superintended by His Spirit, is of an infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. In short, since God does not lie or deceive us, and since God is omniscient, which means he knows all things, his revelation is true in everything that it affirms. Well, that's our position here at Back to the Bible Canada, and that's why we teach the Bible. We believe that teaching the Bible as it is written, following it line for line, word by word, understanding the literary context of any passage, reading it by asking what it meant to the original hearers, and then carefully applying that meaning to our own lives, well, that's the most important thing that we can give our lives to, because these are the thoughts of God. Well, that's been my calling for all of my adult life, and it's been the calling of every Bible teacher here at Back to the Bible. We teach the Bible in that fashion because we trust the Bible. We regard the Bible as the only sure word from God that the human race possesses. Now, over the years, this perspective has been challenged. I simply can't, in a few short minutes I give to this, do justice to the history of the higher critical approach to the Bible. Those who have studied in those seminaries, as I have, that have denied inerrancy may complain that I'm not giving sufficient time in discussing this matter. But others who haven't studied this matter might complain as well that I'm addressing topics they care very little about. So so please understand, I'm trying to address both those who have not studied the critical approach to Scripture and those who have. I know it's an impossible task, but as they say, fools go boldly where angels fear to tread, and so put up with a little folly, would you? We can divide those who reject the Bible's authority into at least three different camps. In one group are those who simply reject the Bible as the Word of God in any sense at all. Atheists would fit into that category. We'd assume agnostics would as well. People of no particular religious persuasion might be in that category. Perhaps people of other religions. A second grouping would be those we might describe as being in the classical, theologically liberal category. The modern theologically liberal movement arose out of Tübingen University in Germany. Tübingen scholars argued that the Bible is a series of various and competing truth claims. One such example is the graf wellhausen hypothesis, which divided the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, into four different writing traditions. 
They argue that Moses didn't write those books after all. Rather, those books developed over progressive generations and that they were put into their final form by editors who combined the various literary traditions in ancient Hebrew culture. When it came to New Testament studies, the old liberals tended to be brutal with the Bible. Using the philosophical tools of the Enlightenment, they argued that miracles were impossible. Well then, what do we make of the many miracle accounts of Jesus? Well, liberal scholars argued that those accounts were a part of a pious fraud. No such thing occurred. And so came what came to be known as the quest for the historical Jesus. That is, since we know Jesus didn't do miracles, who was the real Jesus? So in the end, the quest for the historical Jesus ended up in a failure because no one could agree as to who the historical Jesus was. Liberal churches today deny any authoritative teaching from the Bible. I have heard more than one liberal claim that the Bible gives us insight into how ancient peoples struggled with the concept of God, and that inspires us today to struggle with our own concept of God. See, one of these liberal denominations made news some years ago when one of their pastors claimed to be an atheist. Apparently, you don't even have to believe in God to be a liberal Christian minister. Well, a third group of those who deny the inerrancy of the Bible is far more complicated. These would be people who would argue they believe the Bible is infallible, but not inerrant. Now, this choice of words, infallible but not inerrant, is, in my view, confusing and disappointing. Let me explain. If I were your college professor, and I handed back an exam that you wrote, and I wrote on the top, you were inerrant, you would understand exactly what I'm saying. I would be saying that you received 100% on the exam. You didn't make any errors. That's what inerrant means. It means no mistakes at all. But let's imagine I handed back your exam and I wrote, you were infallible. Now, what would that mean? Well, to be inerrant means to make no mistakes. But to be infallible, well, that actually means you're incapable of making errors. See what I'm saying? Infallibility is actually, in the English language, a stronger word than inerrancy. But here's where it gets cloudy. Those theologians who argue they believe in infallibility but not in inerrancy are in fact confusing people. They're using words in ways not intended by the normal usage of words. So let me explain. I graduated from a seminary which was to become the first evangelical seminary in North America to have abandoned the idea that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. The scholars at my seminary argued that the Bible is infallible but not inerrant. What they meant was that the Bible is true in all areas that relate to faith and ethical conduct. So when the Bible speaks of salvation or when it commends holiness, the Bible was to be completely trusted. It was infallible. But when it came to historical facts, they argued, well, there were times when the Bible got it wrong. The same is true, they argued, when it came to scientific facts. Some of the numbers in counting people, some of the genealogies might be off. They're prone to mistakes. The same, they argued, was also true when it came to some of the stories of Jesus. I sat under one prof who said, when Jesus spoke about demon possession, we have to understand that he had embraced a worldview that we now know to be false. We can describe the same experience, he said, using the tools of science, medicine, and modern psychology. They weren't demon-possessed. They were seriously mentally ill. But, he reassured us, that doesn't mean the Bible isn't infallible. 
The Bible, he proclaimed, is fully reliable. And what he meant was it was reliable when it came down to how to get to heaven and be reconciled with God and how God wants you to live, but was full of all kinds of other errors. More recently, Peter Enns, Old Testament scholar, a man who refers to himself as an evangelical in a book entitled Inspiration and Incarnation, uses one example from 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 to make the point. See, that passage says of Israel, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Well, Enns says that Paul was referring to a Jewish myth which was false. But he says Paul didn't know it was false. He actually believed this myth. Nevertheless, says Enns, God can even use untrue myths to reveal theological truth. See, that's his view of the Bible. Hope you see that. Things are untrue in the Bible, but the main point still remains true. And so this has been a way of doing Bible study, a way that's found its way into seminaries, Bible colleges, and into a great many pulpits as well. I sat under one professor, Paul Jewett, who actually charged that the Apostle Paul wasn't fully grasping the greatness of the doctrine of salvation. Oh, my. But, of course, using the word infallibility to describe this view of the Bible is, as I've said, a very misleading thing. I think a better way of putting it would be to use a phrase, more accurate, I call it, limited errancy. That is, these theologians believe that the errors in the Bible are limited only to those matters that are not salvific and are not related to morality. Ah, well, as we should know, nothing remains static. You know, one recent so-called evangelical scholar has written that the Bible's views on slavery were wrong and immoral. But he argues that by calling slaves brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible opens up the doors for fixing its own problems. It's called a trajectory hermeneutic, meaning the Bible doesn't have the last word on things. Rather, the Bible opens up a new way of thinking, and we're left in our enlightened day to fix those problems. Nevertheless, that same theologian said he still held to infallibility. Do you see why people get confused? See, I'm presenting these critiques of the Bible over against the historical Christian view that the Bible makes no errors, that it's the final word from God on all matters. Am I being naive? Well, that's what I want to discuss in the second half of today's address. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, we trust in the Bible to such a degree that we believe that Scripture, as was given in the original manuscripts, does not affirm anything, anything at all that is contrary to fact. All it says is true. This year has been one of the more challenging years of my lifetime, and I know it has been for many of you. That's why we felt it so important that all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada would continue uninterrupted. In fact, we would even add new Bible teaching video programming on YouTube. Your response has been overwhelming. Your prayers, encouragement, and support has sustained this ministry, and we can't thank you enough. As our fiscal year comes to a close, we'd ask you to continue to support. Our target is $325,000, but to help us get there, a group of ministry friends have provided a $75,000 matching gift pledge. That means every dollar you give is matched by another dollar up to $75,000. Thank you for your continued support. If you'd like more information or to send a gift towards the Match Campaign, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible 
www.ca. For those of you who have never heard the criticisms directed at the Bible before, I don't know where you've been, maybe hidden in a cave somewhere, but if what I've said seems new to you, you should know that there are all manner of people who hold to the inerrancy of the Bible, that have faced the critics squarely and have concluded that it's not the Bible that's found wanting, it's the critics who are found wanting. Let me relate this matter to my own experience. I'm a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary, which in its day was organized to be the Princeton Seminary of the West Coast of the U.S. As I've said, it was an evangelical seminary. It was organized to be a bastion of evangelical thinking, as well as a defense against the liberal trends in scholarship. But it takes too long to explain this matter, but Fuller made a fateful decision. Initially, they thought that their adoption of what I have called limited errancy would allow for the seminary to become an intellectual powerhouse, allowing their faculty to have full academic freedom. But as time progressed, something else emerged. What emerged was more biblical denial. Having said that, I, as a young man, attended Fuller with fear and trembling. I told my wife, Kathy, that if my profs were right about the supposed errors in the Bible, I'd do the right thing. I would most certainly not enter into pastoral ministry. It didn't seem to me that I would be honest to tell people about the truths of the Bible, all the while believing that it was truth with an admixture of multiple examples of error. And furthermore, I also told Kathy that if my profs were right, I was not sure where that would leave me in terms of my own faith. I said, if they're right, I'm not sure I'm going to have enough intellectual footing to carry on in the Christian faith. So I left for class on those days with my wife on her knees imploring God on behalf of her husband. So much was at stake in those days. I was encountering my own battle for the Bible. And as an aside, I I remember standing in the seminary bookstore on one day, and I was looking for a book, and I heard a conversation between two of my classmates. As best as I remember that conversation in those days, it went something like this. One man was telling the other, when I came here, I was so sure about the Bible, but now I don't know what I'm left to believe. And the other man said that he too had the same struggle, but he was still left with two articles of his faith. He said he believed that the Lord's Supper came from a genuine historical event, and he said he still had his pneumatology, that is, he still believed that the Holy Spirit was involved in his life and was leading him to God. Well, I remember hearing that, and I determined that it would never be me. If my faith was based on such slender evidence, I, for my part, would not be a Christian. Rather, I would do the honorable thing and fully abandon my faith. And so recognizing what was at stake, I made a determination. I would double read for all my classes. I would read the texts that were assigned in each class, but I would find conservative texts and read them right alongside of my other reading. And as I did that, I made a remarkable discovery. And it's a discovery that to this day still strikes me as profound. On more than one occasion, I found that my professor had not even bothered to read the conservative inerrancy position, and sometimes even on anything. I would ask, and my prof would say, well, I've never read that. I was careful to read the best conservative textbooks out there. This was before the internet, and my profs, who were quick to charge the Bible with error, had not even read the historic defense of the Christian position on the Bible. And sometimes I found they mocked the conservatives. Actually, that was often the case. Here's one experience, and if my memory serves me correctly, this is pretty much how it went down. My prof said, those people who hold to strict inerrancy, well, they're so interested in defending the book of Jonah 
trying to prove that a human being can survive for three days in the belly of a fish, and all the while, this is what my prof said, they have no idea what the message of the book is all about. Well, I'd been doing my reading. I immediately raised my hand and I said, sir, I'm one of those who believe that the story of Jonah is historical and that Jonah survived three days in the belly of a fish. But if you would allow me the opportunity, I'd like to explain to the class what I think to be the message of the book of Jonah. Well, there was a pause. And without asking me to explain the message of the book, my prof said, well, then what's your point? And I said, sir, it seems to me that you're trying to set up a straw man, a caricature of someone who holds to inerrancy. And that's not fair. Well, quite frankly, I don't know what happened after that. I can't remember. But I think my point still holds. I found my profs made charges against those who hold to biblical inerrancy and hadn't read the best textbooks on the subject. It seems to me that in many ways, and it still feels that way today, it was bandwagonism. It was as if they were saying, you know, all of us smart and interesting people, we've all jettisoned biblical inerrancy. Well, my years at Fuller actually did the opposite to me as to what had been intended. I stopped fearing the biblical critics. Indeed, I began to have a greater confidence than ever before that not one line of the Bible was untrue. But let's switch gears. What are the biggest criticisms of the Bible? Well, clearly in this short study, it's not possible to do the subject justice, but I'll say this. It seems to me that there are four focal points. First, those who deny inerrancy often doubt the historicity of certain biblical accounts, especially when it comes to the first 11 chapters of the Bible, which is the creation account followed by the account of a universal flood. Critics argue that there are similar accounts in other ancient Near Eastern religions, and even though the Bible's account is different in some major respects, nonetheless, there are clear points of similarity. And furthermore, what was believed in the ancient world has been disproved by modern science. My response is simple. Parallel accounts in other ancient texts does not invalidate the Bible's account. Take the matter of the universal flood. It seems to me that there's hardly an ancient people group on earth that does not have some kind of a flood narrative or an ancient creation narrative. But that doesn't prove the Bible to be untrue. And furthermore, I would argue that the creation account is not intended as a full-orbed scientific investigation. For instance, consider Genesis 1 verse 2. It says that after God created the cosmos, the earth was formless and void, or the earth was a howling wasteland in which nothing could live. Well, how long was the earth that way? And what were those conditions? Was it that way for five minutes or an hour or maybe a hundred billion years? The text doesn't say. The text was not written to tell us that. It was written to tell us that God imposed order on a chaotic creation. What sounds so implausible about that? A second lightning rod of criticism has to do with the synoptic problem. It is true that there are some variations between Matthew, Mark, and Luke about the account of Jesus. Again, I don't have the time to get into all of that, but does that indicate error or does it indicate the viewing of the same event from different perspectives? So imagine three witnesses in a car accident. One was in the car behind the event, the other was standing in an overpass looking down, and the third was at the crosswalk beside the road. Is it not possible that all could tell the event as it happened without error and yet at the same time, if the perspective changed, would there not be variations? 
If there weren't variations, they wouldn't be telling the truth. It would be called collusion. But there is not collusion in the Bible. A third area of criticism surrounds the idea of authorship. I've made brief mention of the fact that a great many critics refuse to accept the historical claim that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Still others argue that Isaiah could not have been written by one man. They argue for a number of different authors over a longer period of time. Still others argue that, for instance, 2 Peter was not written by Peter and so forth. It's not a minor question. Article 18 of the Chicago Declaration of Biblical Inerrancy states, We deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or of a quest for sources lying behind it that leads to relativizing, dehistoricizing, or discounting its teaching or rejecting its claim to authorship. That is, the authorship of any text is as important as the text itself. Suffice it to say, there are very good reasons to hold to the Bible as it appears to have been written. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Daniel wrote Daniel. Isaiah wrote Isaiah. Matthew wrote Matthew. You know, a fourth area of criticism has to do with the authenticity of the ancient manuscripts upon which our translations are based. Are there variations in ancient manuscripts? Well, yeah, there are but we glory in the abundance of manuscripts we have. They allow us to get a very good look at what the originals actually were like. Theologian and Bible teacher Paul Feinberg says, Inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the scripture in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether it has to do with doctrine or morality, or with social, physical, or the life sciences. Psalm 18, verse 30 says it well. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Whether it's salvation or genealogies or the amount of men in a battlefield, every word from God proves to be true. Thanks, John. And let me ask you, I think what's probably a pretty fundamental question, but do we need to believe the Bible is completely inerrant in order to be saved. Well, Ben, I know people that don't believe that and who are saved. However, I would say that if that's the view that you hold, you're put on a very dangerous trajectory that if you follow out through to the natural implications of your belief, it will eventually lead you to some very nasty places. So I don't think it's a consistent way to believe. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series a mission for ministry right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Trustworthy, practical Bible teaching is something people of all ages and stages of faith need. Recently, we received these encouraging words. Thank you. The work you're doing is such a blessing. From the library of study materials on your website to the excellent video lessons with Dr. Newfeld. I've been an avid listener and viewer of Back to the Bible Canada for a few years now, and it just keeps getting better. Well, Back to the Bible Canada is striving to meet a deep spiritual need by offering practical, trustworthy Bible teaching resources on air, online, in print, and so much more. As we work toward our fiscal year-end goal of $325,000, we've been provided a very special matching gift pledge of $75,000. 
That means for every dollar you give, another dollar is given up to $75,000, doubling its impact. All you need to do is call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to offer your gift today.